Okay, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And today we're here to talk about, this is SST 14, the Minuteman LP, What Makes a Man Start Fires. As usual, for me anyways, this is a really good Minuteman, I like them all, but this is a really good one because uh, we'll get into it in a bit. I've got a couple of spiels before we get into this release, but this one actually starts to get a little bit closer to, I think, the Minuteman that we like the most. For me, for sure, yep. A couple of quick spiels before. I don't know if you remember, I think it was during the Paranoid Time episode. It might have been a punchline, but it was another Minuteman episode. And I was just recalling, we were talking about George Hurley's brother, Greg Hurley. Yeah. And I think, I think we had said that he is, or at least I did, said that he is a a drummer also okay but i was for this episode what makes a man start fires um i gain started looking at that craig Barra book a wailing of a town which is just killer i mean you got to check it out it's so much info about the pedro scene and you know how in books they have like um casting characters and they have that list and they say who's who yeah so for, I, I think I stand corrected. I don't think Greg Hurley was also a drummer. It appears as though he was a vocalist. Oh, yeah. And what it says is George Hurley, a.k.a. Stinky, that was probably a Pedro nickname. Mm-hmm. It says former lead singer of a couple of bands, Kindled Imagination, Okay. which is a really good band name. I like that name. And the band that we mentioned on the earlier podcast called The Slivers. Right. And then it also says, and I didn't look up what this is, but it also credits him as the creator of the Apple Sizer. Hmm. So I don't know if that's an actual thing or an inside Pedro joke. I don't know. Again, for this episode, there there's a whole section on what makes a man start fires. And it has it has detail and info there that you just can't find anywhere else, which is very cool. Yeah, the only real... Uh, other than the documentary, the only real reference point I have for the Minutemen is uh, the Michael Azarad book. And it kind of glosses over that era. Yeah, it, well, it glosses over a lot of stuff. It's a good, like it was, before that book, there was really nothing except for references in Get in the Van and a couple of like record review books like the Trouser Press yeah. books and stuff like that. But they don't go into any level of detail, really. Hey, so um, speaking of George Hurley, to get prepped for the Husker Du episodes coming up, I, uh, I, I was rereading the Husker Du book. I can't remember what it's called, but you know which one I mean. Not the Bob Mould one. The Husker no, du. no, the Husker Du one. But I haven't read the Bob Mould one, so I uh, it's been on my to-do list. So I bought the audiobook because he reads it. Bob Mould reads it? Yeah. and That would be cool. Yeah, and he talks about <laughs> I just got to this part where he's talking about the Minutemen, and he talk, he, he says George Hurley was a real ladies' man. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. He uh, he definitely looked like a surfer's dude. Well, that's cool. I didn't, you know, I've never really listened to an audiobook except I stumbled across Henry Rollins doing Get in the Van on YouTube once, and I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of cool. But I bought that on CD when it came out. He won a Grammy for that. The audiobook, I know, I know. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That Bob Mould book is really good. Yeah. I always, I always recommend that one. The Husker Du one is um, it's good, too, for different reasons, but I, I much prefer 
the Bob Mold book. Yeah, they're just. I'm just at the part where they're kind of just getting going, but uh, so far I'm really, really enjoying it. Let's start talking about what makes a man start fires. History lesson, part one. So, this is a this is a bit of a unique record when you read about it in A Wailing of a Town. Mike Watt gives an account, pretty detailed account of making this record, and it's interesting because it was written while he was staying at his mom's house during 81 and 82 while he was going through knee surgery on both knees. He had one after the other, kind of. Hmm. It's also interesting because during that time, Dee Boone was living elsewhere in a place called Culver City, and the way Watt explains it, this resulted in him writing almost all of the music for this record. Like, obviously, not the drum fills, not the guitar solos, but all of the songs. Watt wrote them all. Almost all, I mean, if not all of them. Now, the three of them, Watt, Hurley, and Boone, they all contributed lyrics. And Watt explains it like, you know, it was so much of him on this record. When they came to the table with lyrics, when sequencing the album, they uh, kind of split it up so that they weren't all, all going to be like Watt lyric, Watt music songs back to back. But it's a very, he characterizes it as a very, very unique uh, record because it's so much of his writing of the actual music, which is very interesting because, as we mentioned at the outset in this uh, podcast, this record kind of represents a bit of a shift in their sound i would say a little less hardcore getting a little bit more funky and a little bit more melodic i would say yeah more traditional song structure i would say that too it's interesting watt also explains it like back around this time frame in 82 with all the knee surgeries he's even doing gigs like sitting in a chair i knew he had knee problems i i didn't know they were he had them like that early in his life I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote or misrepresent, but the way he explains it, it's like almost like a disease or a degenerative disease in his knees or whatever, where they just did not grow properly, I guess. And they had to uh, tinker with them a bit Hmm. when he was uh, around that age. It ended up being a very heavy Watt penned album, but they all shared the lyrics. The recording's very interesting too. Watt explains that this was recorded at Music Lab in Hollywood with Spot. So another interesting thing about this time frame, apparently, is Spot stops touring with Black Flag and he starts to set up a kind of a home base for recording, as Watt explains it. Says he's starting to get his, um, Watt calls it, there's this whole paradigm shift. He is, uh, they're going to Hollywood to record this and not Hermosa Beach. And Watt says this is Spot getting his own scene and that he was looking for other work. And then he found this place up in Hollywood called the Music Lab. They recorded it, basically almost all of it, in one day. And Watt seems to think it was recorded in sequence. It was Super Econo. Yeah. And they did some overdubs the following month. This was recorded on July 3rd, 82. Then there was some mixing... Mixing was done at Total Access Studio in Redondo Beach. But again, a couple of interesting stories kind of weave into this record. We've got, you know, Watt writing most of the tunes. We've got Spot falling off of the Black Flag touring train. So it's we'll have to keep an eye on that, I guess. Joe Biza plays on some songs on this. 
which is kind of interesting. I wonder if Spot, like, if that had anything to do with what's going on in Black Flag world around this time. Well, yeah, I was just going to get to that. Apparently, so they, they record this record in 82, but it doesn't come out until January of 83. In the meantime, they put together the Beanspill EP with uh, Joe Carducci and uh, Thermidor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Watt references the fact that there was a bit of a delay because of the uh, the unicorn uh, lawsuit that we spoke about in the damaged episode. I think that was SST episode 7. I bet money was pretty tight at SST. Watt also references that there was a kind of a lack of resources. Yeah. And I'm sure that's what he means. And Greg Ginn's comment to Watt back then, as he tells it, is... Well, you know, it's Black Flag's label. We'll get to your record as soon as we can. But it's but it's kind of where, you know, the, the priority is Black Flag. So that's kind of interesting, too. You're absolutely right that this is uh, around that time. Well, pretty soon Black Flag's going to uh, not be able to release anything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's kind of the history of what makes a man start fires. There's not a lot out there. But um, definitely, again, this uh, Wailing of a Town book gives the best account that I can find. So let's talk about the actual release. History Lesson, Part 2. Okay, so we were talking about how this record, it kind of represents a bit of a shift in the Minutemen, their sound. I see it as them getting a bit more funky bit more melodic. But the other thing for me on this record, and this, this we were talking about Spot, this record sounds good too. It is a really good sounding Miniman record. You can hear everything really well. There's great, you know, not to sound too technical, not that I even know what I'm talking about, but there's great separation in the instruments mm-hmm. and they're playing a lot more intricately. But they are, like these guys were monsters on their instruments to begin with, but especially on this record, it just jumps out at you about like, the crazy crazy playing the guitar is there but the bass and the drums is getting much more fancy and stuff like the drums in particular on the song beacon sighted through the fog are insane and there's so many other songs where it's just insane i wonder with d boone not living there i wonder if george and watt jammed without him and maybe had more time to kind of get the rhythm section locked in well he does he does maybe he does mention though that like it's a unique record that he wrote it but when they were getting ready to go into the studio they were all playing as a band by that time d boone had actually moved in to mike watt's mom's house they're they're living together when they're getting ready to record the album more the writing than the you know actually putting it together exactly yeah. exactly that but having said that though i mean I, I would i would characterize the way that mike watt explains it you know he almost feels guilty for having written so much because he really wants it to be a democracy in the band but i mean writing it on if you're you're a bass player and you're writing songs you are going to write you're definitely going to write stuff differently than if you were writing them on guitar and so that may be part of the the reason that you hear such funky drum and bass on this record i don't know yeah anyways the artwork on this record we can start there you reminded me i used to have the t-shirt of this 
SST is weird that way. Like they, SST made band t-shirts instead of like now it would be the band that made them typically. You know what I mean? Yeah, you could you could get everything out of the SST Superstore catalog: t-shirts, stickers, everything. And they kind of had like one one or two designs for each band that they sold for many years. You know? Yeah. I had another Minutemen one at one point that had the anchor on it. That's the one I have. I still have that one. Yeah. I actually ordered that from SST like in the last five years or so. I don't have either of them because they were both white t-shirts and I I think I spilled coffee on both yeah, of them. Yeah, white shirts don't last long, that's for sure. Yeah. Not for me either. I ordered that from SST about five years ago. It sounds like people out there in the interweb know can tell by our Canadian accents that we're not from the U.S., but for some reason it's... I can't order from SST anymore. I don't know what that, why that is, but the last time I did it was about five years ago when I got a got that T-shirt. Hmm. Maybe something changed when they when he moved to Texas. Maybe. Yeah, I thought I thought Greg Ginn moved to Texas a lot earlier than that, but who knows? I mean, sometimes it can just be if you ever try and order stuff from out of country. Sometimes they can I don't know what you call that the guy who runs the website they can hit the wrong setting or whatever. Yeah. But anyways, it is a Raymond Pettibone drawing artwork. It looks like a kid starting fire to a bed, I would say, and running out the door. And it's a pretty pot, like a, I would say it's a, a pretty famous Raymond Pettibone image. Mm-hmm. It's in lots of books that uh, if you pick up uh, collections of Pettibone artwork, it's in almost all of them. On the back cover, there are three drawings. One's by D. Boone, and it looks like D. Boone artwork, for sure. It has a caption as well, and it says, uh, We only want a better sanitation system. Stop complaining. If you keep it up, no summer picnic. So it's, uh, and it looks like it's at a, in a welding shop there. Yep. So this D. Boone, definitely some political undertones there in his artwork, for sure. Another piece of artwork on the back, it looks like um, an army army guy holding a rifle but a cyclops and it's credit to g is the first initial and then jacobelli i have no idea who that is and then there's one other piece of artwork in the other corner on the back and it's hard to tell who it is three guys anyways one with a hat on and i definitely cannot read the signature i have no idea who drew it and then on the back the credits it says miniman would like to thank joe biza for his guitar on the song's Beacon Sighted Through Fog and Faith. And uh, we kind of went through this before. Basic tracks were recorded in July 82 at Music Lab Studios, Studio B. Oh, and that's another thing. In, in the book that I was reading up on this, Watt was explaining like Studio B. It was so econo. Not only did they record during the off hours, they did it in Studio B, like the cheap studio. Yeah. Yeah, engineered and produced by Spot. And that is... That's kind of the back and front cover. The songs are, I mean, some of the most famous songs for me anyways, like Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs. Beacon Sighted Through Fog is one of my favorites. Pure Joy is one of my favorites. And I really like that song, The Anchor, which in that documentary, We Jam Econo, Mike Watt credits that one to George Hurley, the lyrics. Okay. So there are almost 20, 20 songs on this one. It's a great record. It really is. I mean, I really like it. Earlier on when we did the punchline, you were kind of like, ah, you know, 
I'm a bigger fan of the later stuff, and I, I hear what you're saying. I know where you're coming from on that. And so far, we've had, you know, Paranoid Time and The Punchline. This one really represent, you know, because now we're going to get into Buzzer Howell. We're eventually going to get to Double Nickels. Yeah, Buzzer Howell's, Buzzer Howell's kind of where it starts for me. Yeah, I think this was a really good record. You know, we never mentioned this before, but you know how the Minutemen and Firehose kind of use that typeface from the New Alliance records? Yeah, it kind of looks like a typewriter maybe or something. Totally, it's like yeah. typewriter font. <laughs> yeah, it probably. I guess it, back then it would have been an actual typewriter. Yeah, it may very well have been. They have that on the A-side label. On the B-side label... It looks like, it's not credited, but it really looks like another Pettibone. It might not be, but it's it really kind of is reminiscent of a Pettibone drawing. It has the same type of little inscriptions in there. And it says, uh, fuck as holy. Hmm. And it, But it says it's accredited to Ray Dillon. Hmm. The run-out grooves on this record are very interesting. A says, uh, the A side is, it's hard to read here. It says, Bones, the list, the list in my dream of echoes. I probably didn't say that right, though, because there's a, there's a question mark. Wrong emphasis. Mm-hmm. And then the B side is dot, dot, dot. And the guests came in through little funnels, dripping. Weird. Maybe from a book or something. Now, with when it comes to the Minutemen, that would not surprise me. Yeah. You definitely read about them being avid readers for sure. Mm-hmm. History buffs too, right? Big time. Yeah. Are you uh, are you ready to do the ballot result? I definitely am, and I know I know what I will pick. But let's go there. Ballot result. What do you like? I'm gonna pick Beacon Sighted Through Fog. Even though Bob Dylan wrote Propaganda Songs is arguably like the most famous track off of this, Beacon Sighted Through the Fog has got like it's it's for me is the first track where the insanity of george hurley's drummings you just it stands out it slaps you in the face repeatedly i love it i'm down with that and you know what if i was going to pick one after that i would have actually went with the anchor yeah i love the bass cording that mike watt does kind of in the intro song as it kind of kicks in i love that stuff all right uh what's next week the next podcast is Everything Went Black by Black Flag. Yeah. This one is going to be, there's lots to talk about in this one. So stay tuned. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>